Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Priya, and I'm a student here at UNC Chapel Hill. Um, <laughs> I first got connected to love through the story, um, and it's just been really a privilege and a blessing to be able to fellowship um, with everyone each week. So I'm going to read John 6, uh, verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, What sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Amen. Thank you, Priya. Appreciate it. Let's thank Priya. Amen. And let's also give it up again for our Quest Kids. Let's give it up for them. Yeah. Oh, man, we appreciate them so much. And Pastor April, Pastor Derek, and the way that they lead our kids and shepherd our kids and love our kids and are raising them up and discipling them in this relationship with Jesus. And, and as part of that, uh, teaching them that heart of compassion for our community. And for the kids to lead the way in raising that money um, that will go towards people who are struggling with hunger right here in our own community and around the world. Um, it's just so inspiring to see them do that. So, and it was also very gratifying to see Derek covered in all of that silly string. That was so good. Derek was my college roommate, so I kind of enjoyed that moment too much. All right. That was great. Awesome, and uh, thank you to everybody who's going to be part of the Crop Walk this afternoon and those who have donated to that um, and showing that sense of courageous generosity uh, of giving of yourself to make sure that others have uh, what they need. So thank you for the way that you guys are leading in that as well. So today we're continuing in this series called Imagine God. And throughout this series, we are um, examining the seven I am statements of Jesus. Seven statements that Jesus makes in the Gospel of John, revealing who he is. And so this is what we're studying on our way towards the cross on Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday, right? Easter Sunday. And so we're in this Christian season known as Lent, and it's the 40 days that lead up to and that walk Christians on this journey with Jesus towards the cross and towards that, that silence of Holy Saturday and the victory and joy of Resurrection Sunday. And so as we're in this season of Lent, the season of fasting, this season of seeking God's face and opening ourselves up more 
to what he has to say to us, submitting ourselves, surrendering ourselves to his voice as he speaks to us. We are digging into these seven statements, seeking to know more of who he is as Jesus reveals himself to us. So that's that's why we call it Imagine God, because we're trying to wrap our minds around the reality of who he is. And, And where do you even begin with that? Where do you even begin in trying to imagine who God is? Is there a poet or prophet anywhere who is up to that task? Who is equipped to wrap our minds and hearts around the unfathomable reality of the one who is so high and holy and transcendent beyond our grasp? Who is able to open our eyes and make us see? And Jesus steps forward and says, I am. I am. He is the one who is able to help us see the reality of who God is. And so through these seven statements that Jesus makes, he reveals deep theological truth through a creative image for the sake of breakthrough transformation for us and for his followers then. So why are these seven statements that Jesus makes, why are they so important why are we take making such a big deal out of them that we would walk through them like this well when they're laid out like this in the gospel of john and when we discover that there are seven of these statements that jesus makes where he says i am paired with a metaphor that gives us this visual for being able to imagine who god is this this rooted earthy kind of metaphor that Jesus uses over and over again. When we see that John lays out seven of those, it makes us pay attention. And it helps us realize that the author of this gospel is trying to get something across to us. This is such a beautifully written gospel, and it's so beautifully and intentionally designed. The story is so well designed that when we see something like that, it stands out to us, and it makes us ask, what Is he trying to tell us? What is he trying to say? There are also seven miracles that John intentionally lays out in this gospel. And through those seven miracles, John is telling us who Jesus is and why Jesus came. He's pointing to the identity of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. And the same thing is happening in these seven I am statements that John records of Jesus. He's telling us his identity, who he is, and his mission, why he came. It's intentional as well because of the first two words. It's not only the creative image that Jesus gives to us, but he begins with these first two words of saying, I am. And in the Jewish mindset, that that is a powerful phrase. Why? Because it echoes back to the Old Testament when God first reveals himself, reveals who he is, and reveals his name to Moses. And when Moses says, you're sending me into Egypt to set the slaves free and to lead them out of captivity in Egypt, you're sending me back to your people with this mission, but I need to know who it is that is sending me. Like when they ask me, who is sending you? I need to give them an answer. Please tell me, who should I say is sending me? And God gives him, reveals him this personal name, this holy name. And he says, you tell them, I am that I am sent you. I am 
that I am. Now, that's powerful and poetic, but I have to imagine that when Moses first heard that, he's like, a little bit more, please. (laughs) All right. Give me a little more to work with. But it's this beautiful and holy description of who God is. I am not just a God who was not just a God with potential to one day become something. I am. I am the reality of this universe and everything swirls around me and flows out of me and is because of me. I am. The Jewish people understood this to be such a holy name that they did not dare even utter it. And yet here Jesus comes proclaiming himself to be I am. Now you might think, now listen, Jesus is saying I am, like in today's passage, he's saying I am the bread of life. Is he really trying to call himself that holy name of God? I mean, we all use the phrase I am all the time and none of us are making proclamations of divinity when we do that, right? I am hungry, I am sleepy, right? We're not jumping to a divine uh, proclamation when we do that, no. But we have to understand that John lays it out very clearly for us and explains to us very clearly that Jesus is, in fact, using that phrase strategically. And Jesus knows exactly what he's doing when he does it. And John knows exactly what he's doing when he writes it and records it this way. In fact, in John chapter 9, there's a major confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders. Those who are the most upset about him using this kind of language. While many of the common people were drawn to Jesus and their eyes were being opened, their ears were being opened, their hearts were being opened to him, the religious establishment of the day was very resistant to him. And it moved beyond resistant to becoming in all-out opposition to him. And it moved from all-out opposition even to the point of where they began to design and plan for his death and to take him out. And there's this confrontation that we see in John chapter 9 where Jesus is talking to them and, and they are questioning him and questioning his authority and that where do you get the authority to say these kinds of things and to make these kinds of claims? And Jesus says to them, your father Abraham from the Old Testament thousands of years ago, your father Abraham from the Old Testament longed to see what you are seeing right now. He longed to see my arrival. This made them extremely upset, as you might might understand. And he says that he has seen Abraham and that Abraham has seen him. And the people say, you're not even 50 years old yet. How can you make a claim to have seen Abraham and for him to have seen you? And Jesus says directly to them, because before Abraham was, I am. I am. Mic drop. All right. This made them so upset. This made them so upset that they immediately began to pick up stones to kill Jesus on the spot for this kind of blasphemy. But Jesus, once again, not only declares his divinity by saying, I am, but he also proves his divinity by being able to slip right through the crowd who is trying to take his life. Because it's not something that they could take from him until he was ready to give it to them. And so he escapes their plan. It's so intentional and it's so strategic what John is doing here and what Jesus is doing 
by making these kinds of claims. That's why we're taking so much time to walk through them. Because Jesus takes this deep theological concept, this powerful theological truth of the I am identity of who he is. And yet in his kindness and his grace and his creativity and his understanding of you and me because he made us and he knows how we operate. He knows what we need in order to understand him. He ties this deep theological truth to this simple yet creative image that he borrows from everyday life. And so he says something as profound and yet as simple as I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And that's from today's passage what we're going to be digging into today. So a little bit of context on today's passage here from Matthew chapter 6. There's that key statement that Jesus makes there in uh, verse 35 of saying, I am the bread of life. But there's so much context that leads into that and important things that are happening before it that really give the truth and the depth to what Jesus is saying. And so one of the things that happens is at the beginning of John chapter 6, we have this miracle that Jesus performs. It's the miracle of Jesus feeding 5,000 people. Jesus feeds 5,000 people. This is an important miracle. Other than the resurrection, it's the only miracle that is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. So it tells us that this is very important. And for John to include this as well, we lean into this and we try to dig out what truth is there and what God is trying to tell us through that. So it's the only miracle besides the resurrection that shows up in everyone of the four Gospels. And so it's this miracle where the people have come from all over the place to hear Jesus speak. They follow him out into the wilderness uh, where there's no place for them to buy food, right? There's no, there's no like cookout tray for them to go pick up, okay? And uh, I love the cookout tray. And um, so there's none of that. And they're out there in the middle of the wilderness. They're hanging on every word that Jesus has to say. And before they realize it, they, they, real, they come to the realization, hey, we've been out here a while. We're hungry. And there's nowhere for us to get any food. And the people start to grumble about that. The apostles come to Jesus and tell him, hey, we need to send these people away because there's no food. They need to go get some food from somewhere. And so Jesus asks them, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What do we have to feed them? And they're like, that's impossible, Jesus. All right. And Philip comes with this impossibility. He's like, there's no way that we can do this. And then Andrew, one of the unsung disciples. I love this guy. All right. The brother of Peter. And he's so important, but he, we very rarely talk about him. Andrew speaks up. And I love what he says. He's like, well, there is this child over here. There is this young boy and he's got five loaves of bread and he's got two small fish. But what would that do against such a great need? I love that he recognizes that the impossibility of it. And yet there's this little sliver of possibility for him to even mention it. I don't have anything to give. I mean, I could borrow something from this child. But that's the only thing that we've got to work with. And Jesus takes that and he says, have the people sit down. And he blesses the five loaves and he blesses the two fish and they begin to multiply and they begin to hand out the bread and the fish to all the people who are gathered there. And everyone gets so full and satisfied that in the end they collect 12 baskets full of leftovers when it's all said and done. Another point back to the Old Testament story as well with that number of 12 and the 12 tribes of Israel. It's powerful. 
I was thinking about this, and I could just imagine, like I'm thinking about when Lauren Dearmore comes up here after announcements on Sundays, and she's like, hey, the bagel bar gave us way too many bagels today for free. Can you please take some home? Like I'm imagining Lauren as part of the disciples and standing up at the end. We've got 12 baskets full. I've got some plastic bags, please. All right. Hey, exactly. That's this. Please take them home. So this is, a, this is a beautiful miracle, and that's what is leading in to this statement that Jesus makes. And the miracle is pointing ahead to what Jesus is about to reveal about himself. I think it's important for us to see in this miracle that this miracle deals with real tangible needs. That God in flesh and blood, Jesus himself, answers the needs of these people in the form of fish and bread. It's a very physical, a very physical answer that he gives to those needs. The philosopher David Hume says that a miracle is a violation of nature. But what we see through the Gospels of Jesus over and over again, that his miracles are not a violation of nature. They're a revelation of the deepest nature, of his nature. And they're often immersed in the nature of the world that he created. So many of these miracles are earthy and physical and visible, like the miracle we talked about last week, where Jesus spits into the dirt, forms mud, puts it on the man's eyes, and he's able to see. Jesus didn't just answer with a feeling or a new understanding or a sharp philosophical idea. His answer was touchable. His answer was tangible. His answer was tasteable. And this is often how God moves in our lives. His compassion on the crowd provoked a physical action on behalf of the crowd. And he met that physical need of the people who were gathered there. This is not a sense of prosperity gospel, all right, when we look at this passage. The prosperity gospel tells us that if we have enough faith, then we're going to have material things in abundance, all right, there's nothing in the gospel of Jesus that tells us that. There's nothing in the gospel of Jesus that tells you you're going to be rich if you believe in God and you're going to get all the things you want if you just have enough faith. In fact, the gospel of Jesus says, come follow me, lay down your life and take up a cross. There's Not a whole lot of prosperity in that. Many of the disciples, the original apostles, lost their lives for the sake of the gospel doesn't seem like a whole lot of prosperity in that. Paul was beaten, shipwrecked, had to escape out the side of a wall of a city to escape with his life. Many times thought he had lost his life, spent time in prison. Doesn't seem like prosperity in that. There's nothing about the gospel of Jesus that lines up with that false gospel, the prosperity gospel. What Jesus is getting at here isn't prosperity gospel. He's getting at participation gospel. And I love the fact that he asks for the insights, for the ideas, for the involvement of his disciples in this miracle that he performs. He asks Andrew and he asks Philip. They both offer practical, realistic assessment of the situation. But I love that little hope that Andrew adds in there. Here's a boy. Five small loaves, two small fish. What will that do against such great need? But I'm going to borrow what this little person has, and I'm going to put it on the table and see what you do with it, Jesus. Jesus is able 
to take that little that we give and return it in abundance. Jesus is asking every one of us to take what we have, even if it's borrowed from somebody else, and lay it on the table. But what can the little amount do that I have against such a great need? In your hands, nothing. In his hands, who can even imagine what he can do with that? So that's the miracle that is building into Jesus making this statement about being the bread of life. The people recognize that there's something about Jesus. And in this passage that we had read for us earlier, they come and they begin to talk to him about this manna from heaven that their ancestors ate back in the Old Testament, back in the time of Moses. We're back to Moses again and this connection between Moses and Jesus. And they point back to that and they say, after Moses went and brought the people out of slavery in Egypt and began to lead them towards the promised land, When they were in that season of 40 years of being in the desert, God provided for the people by miraculously having bread show up on the ground every morning. Every morning, it was called manna. It's a word which means, what is it? All right? Because they came out and they're like, what is it? All right? It's amazing. Do not call your mother's food manna, okay? Don't do that. What is this, okay? Don't do that, all right? Um, And so... Uh, There's this manna that appears on the ground and it provides for the people. It's God's miraculous provision for the people throughout that time of living in the wilderness. Now, we can see an obvious connection between this miracle that Jesus performs, the miraculous provision of the people using bread while he's out in the wilderness. We can see that direct connection between what Jesus does there and what happens with Moses in the Old Testament. And the people caught a little glimpse of that, but they were not yet convinced. And they came back to Jesus and they started grumbling for more. They started grumbling for more. Give us more of these signs. Prove it to us. Show us who you really are. Our forefathers, our ancestors, they ate manna in the desert. Can you give us that? Can you give us that? And Jesus answers them by saying, Not only can I give you that, not only did I already give you that. It's more than that. I am the bread from heaven. It's not only something that I give you to provide for you. I am your provision. I am everything that you need. I am the bread of life. I am the bread from heaven. So what does this imagery of the bread represent? It represents three things. Uh, Number one, provision, God's provision for the people in the Old Testament through the wilderness, God's provision for the people in this story who were out in the wilderness. And God miraculously provides in an abundant kind of way for the people in their need. And God is moving in the same ways in our lives. We have to have our eyes open to see it and our hearts open to receive it. And so it represents provision. It also represents that prophecy In that sense that the people had been waiting for another leader like Moses. When is this Messiah going to show up? This king, this leader like Moses from the Old Testament to lead us out of the oppression that we're in now. And Jesus is saying, I am that. I'm the fulfillment of all of that. I'm not only going to give you manna from heaven. I am the manna from heaven. And it's also representing a promise. Not just the fulfillment of something that's happened in the past. But in this, Jesus is beginning to point forward to the reality 
of why he came and who he is, that he is going to become for the people a sacrifice, his body broken like bread for the salvation of the world, for the forgiveness of sin. And so Jesus is pointing ahead to that promise that we're going to talk about in a few minutes that he lays out with his disciples there on that last night that he is with them around the table before his crucifixion. And the bread is going to become an image of Jesus's body being broken on the cross. And so there are all three of these things are happening layered on top of each other in this statement that Jesus makes about being the bread of life. And he's intentional about all three of those. Bread is this common image that's in the life and teachings of Jesus because it was so common in the life of his day. It's this staple of survival in his day. And so Jesus intentionally uses that imagery of bread. And, and he uses it throughout his teaching and throughout his ministry. Uh, when Jesus is being tempted in the desert, and Satan is tempting him. He's been fasting for 40 days in the desert, which echoes the 40 years that the people spent in the desert in the Old Testament. It's also why we fast for 40 days during Lent, leading up to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So he's out in the desert, and he's fasting, and he's tempted three times by Satan. And one of those temptations is because, of Jesus, because Jesus is so physically hungry, Satan says to him, take the stones that are here on the ground and turn them into bread. If you are the son of God, if you have all of this power, then do this. There's no need for you to be here hungry. And Jesus answers back with scripture. And he says, a person cannot live on bread alone. But on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So Jesus in this temptation in the desert says a person cannot live on bread alone. And he's telling us that we cannot live simply on the things that we take in to survive. What we really need in the deepest level is him. He is the bread of life. He's the bread of life. And Jesus is teaching on prayer. Part of one line of that prayer is he teaches us to pray. Give us today our daily bread. Give us what we need today in this moment. Help us to not worry about tomorrow. Help us to not live under regret of yesterday, but give us what we need today. And Jesus is saying to us, I am what you need every single day. And you cannot make it without me. I am your daily bread. Jesus' revelation of his identity, as we've already been talking about, I am the bread of life. And then Jesus on his last meal, at his last meal with his disciples, when he breaks the bread that is on the table, and he tells them, this bread is my body that is broken for you. That is broken for you. And so as Jesus is telling us he's the bread of life, he's ultimately pointing to that truth, to that pinnacle truth, that he is the bread of life. He will be broken so that we can be made whole. And all of this is building up to this moment that Jesus has with his disciples at the table. Maya Angelou is a great uh, poet, an American treasure um, that, that pa she passed away about four years ago. Um, incredible poet. 
love her writing. What I didn't know is that she doesn't she didn't only write poetry, but she also wrote cookbooks. And I'm like, why does my Angelo write cookbooks? Like, why are you doing that? And digging into it, this is this is a quote from her. And she sees that she sees food and this gift of eating and not just eating, but in sharing a table together as something that is so central to life and is so life giving to each of us. Here's her statement on that. Eating is so intimate, she says. Eating is so intimate when you invite someone to sit at your table and you cook for them. You're inviting a person into your life. You're inviting a person into your life. There's this intimacy about it. There's this relationship that begins to form around the table and over food. It's not something that we just do to survive. It's something that we do to fully live together. She says, when you're sharing a table with someone and when you're serving someone in that kind of way, you're inviting that person into your life. This is what Jesus is doing with this imagery of the bread. He's inviting you into intimacy with him. He's inviting you to his table. And he's inviting you into his life. That's what he wants for you. That's what he's getting at by making this statement. Most of us settle for the teaching of Jesus at a distance. And many of us seek after the miracle of abundance. But we pass on the table of intimacy. We pass on that table of intimacy. If you don't believe me, it happens right here in this chapter. John chapter 6 flows like this. Jesus draws the masses. They flood out to see what he's going to do next. Jesus feeds the 5,000 and they can't believe it. They can't get their minds around what they've witnessed and what he's done. After that, Jesus walks on water. And when he gets to the other side, he meets a group of people who are grumbling for more. After everything that he's just done, they're grumbling for more, which also echoes back to the Old Testament and that Moses journey through the wilderness for 40 years where the people constantly were grumbling. God, why did you lead us out of Egypt just to die in the desert? You should have left us as slaves. We could have died there. At least we would have had graves. And the people are, again, grumbling for more. Jesus gives a hard teaching where he says this. I am the bread of life. And then he takes it to this next level when he says, if you're going to be my follower and if you're going to have life in me, then you must eat my flesh and you must drink my blood. At which point the marketing department for Jesus lost their minds. (laughs) And the people began to walk away from Jesus. He lost so many of his followers, that crowd, that momentum, the buzz that he had built through these miracles. It began to fade away when he started teaching difficult things like that because they didn't understand what he was saying. They couldn't get their minds around what he was saying. So they started bailing on him and walking away. And he turns to his disciples, the closest, the 12 there. And he says, are you going to leave me too? And they say, where else are we going to go? Where else are we going to go? I want to be one of those people who has nowhere else to go but Jesus. Jesus gives this hard teaching, and the people begin to bail. They were seeking after the miracle of abundance, but when they got the offer to sit at the table of intimacy, it was too much, and they did not want that. 
That's not what they signed up for. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. And by that, he's telling us that he is your life. He is your daily bread. He is the manna from heaven. He's the table around which relationships grow. He's the miraculous and abundant provision. He's the bread that is broken to give you life. He is your feast. He is your feast. I want to give you two challenges this week in response to what Jesus says here. Number one, I want to challenge you, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a disciple of Jesus and a missionary for Jesus, every believer is a disciple, every disciple is a missionary, every one of us is sent. Wherever we go, we're sent by him. He says, just as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. All of us are sent. And if that's you, and you are walking in the way of Jesus and walking in that relationship with Jesus, then I want to challenge you this uh, over this next month, all right? Over the next month, I want to challenge you to host a love feast, okay? I want to challenge you to open up a table. It could be in your home, or you could invite someone to a restaurant. If that is financially impossible for you, then talk to us, and we can help make that happen for you. But I want to challenge you to invite people into your life, to invite them into that kind of intimate setting of a table, just like Jesus has done for you and transformed your life and show them the radical hospitality of Jesus and break bread with them, break bread with them. It's in that kind of intimate, personal environment where you'll get to know someone, where you can know who they are, where you can know their story, where they're coming from, and when you can begin to truly love them in the way that they need to be loved, all right? I'm not telling you at the end of the meal, like before you give them dessert, to give them the plan of salvation and, you know, don't let them out the door until you do. I'm not saying that. I'm saying invite people into a relationship and be intentional about it and let them see the reality of Jesus through you. We have people throughout this church that are doing that in beautiful ways. Our friends Mark and Jenny host meals in their neighborhood every week and other people in their neighborhood are hosting them and it's a beautiful thing to see that happen. Our friends John and Natalie are doing a similar thing of hosting neighbors for a meal. We've got small groups that meet around the table all the time in different restaurants or in your homes. Uh, The Old Man Coffee group that meets at Merritt's. We have a member of our congregation who owns a restaurant who lives this out in such a beautiful way that this week a person who is nearing the end of a battle with cancer sent a message and asked for a meal to be brought from her. Why? Because there's something intimate about the way she does that and welcomes people to her table. And so she took her table to this person. I'm going to challenge you to have a love feast with somebody. Invite someone to your table. And into that intimate setting. And let them see the way that Jesus has transformed you. Challenge number two is this. Today we're about to close in a very appropriate way. We do this every week. But it's of course appropriate today. Based on the message. We're going to close at the Lord's table. And sharing in this meal that's often called communion. Sometimes it's called the Lord's Supper. Sometimes it's called the Eucharist. But it's this meal that Jesus shared with his disciples on the last night. 
And Jesus was with them at the table. And he took the bread that was on the table. And these hard teachings that he was giving them, giving to them about eating his flesh and drinking his blood that made so many people walk away. Finally, it comes clear and it makes sense. As Jesus took the bread that was on the table and he said, this bread is like my body. Broken for you. Jesus talking about the kind of death that he was about to enter into on the cross. This sacrificial death for us. Laying his life down so that we could be brought into relationship with him. And he took the cup that was on the table. And he said, this cup represents the blood of the new covenant. My blood poured out for the salvation of the world, for the forgiveness of sins. Every time you taste it, remember what I have done for you. I'm going to challenge you. Challenge number two is to approach the table today and to partake of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ, the bread of life who gave his life for us. If you are prepared to do that today, then in just a moment, we're going to invite you into it. We have another member of our congregation and a friend of ours who just a couple of weeks ago took this meal for the very first time. Over months-long journey of being a part of this family, of asking questions, invited by a friend with whom he's in a lab with. And that friend invited him to come to be a part of this church family. He came with his questions. He found people through reasonable faith meeting and through the story Bible study and through volunteering here in this congregation, people who met with him, who listened to his questions and shared with him and showed him the reality of the love of Jesus. And every week during communion, when we would extend the offer of communion, he would just graciously cross his arms to say, I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready yet. A couple of weeks ago, it was an incredible joy to walk up to that friend and see those arms not crossed. And as he nodded his head and said, I'm ready, I'm ready. It was a moment in which he tasted the reality of the grace of Jesus Christ. Maybe that's you today. Maybe it's someone who for the very first time is embracing the truth of who Jesus is and is saying, Jesus, you are the bread of life. You are my salvation. And I am yours. If that's you today, then we cannot wait to celebrate this feast with you. There will be two stations available, one on this side, one on that side. If you need a gluten-free option, then that is available right here. You come down to the front. You tear off a piece of the bread, dip it into the cup, taste and see that the Lord is good. Come and share in this feast the bread of life broken for you. Amen.